Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to explore the first part of this sermon is looking at what the end times will not be. So we're going to refute some bad eschatology. Unfortunately, this was probably the predominant view of eschatology that most of us grew up under. This form of eschatology really swept uh, this part of the nation. And uh, it was a... Uh, Brother Larry spoke on tradition and how tradition can supplant the Word of God in people's thinking sometimes. That's true for anybody. That's true for us here. We have a tradition. Traditions can be a good thing. They can help keep you going off into the left field. They give you some cohesiveness from generation to generation. But we all have to acknowledge that we ourselves have traditions. The challenge is, do those traditions line up with the Word of God? Uh, there was a time when such an eschatology was no tradition at all because such an eschatology didn't even exist till the mid-1800s. And so what happened in this country, especially among Baptists and a lot of other denominations, is that this new doctrine became a tradition and I know people now that use it now as a test of orthodoxy. And if you don't agree with their eschatology, then you're some kind of heretic. Well, that can't be true because there was a time when, well, obviously then all of Christianity would have been heretics because that kind of eschatology didn't even exist in church history. But let us read now and we will fill in some of the blanks of what I'm uh, leaving out. Verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we have some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, and known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. You see here, he will now enter into a, uh, a polemic against bringing the Old Testament into the New Testament. As we went over uh, last week, there are entire denominations, entire groups of people that still abide under the Old Covenant. Catholics still have a religion that is fundamentally an Old Covenant-styled religion. We also went over how uh, some people, a lot of good Baptists even, a lot of people we all know, have an understanding that God's future goal for mankind is to reestablish the Old Covenant over the entire earth. And hopefully by the end of this sermon, you'll realize that that is just a really bad way of looking at eschatology. And where we're going to compare the old to the new. And then we're going to see whether that makes any sense for God to take the old to supplant the new. There are people and books written that label the church age as a parenthesis in God's 
history, what God really wants to do among men. The Jews hadn't cooperated, so he's going to set them aside and do some busy work until he gets back to them to do what he really wants. We're going to see that that is a very poor way, although very common way, of thinking. So he immediately begins this, uh, this, this dichotomy between the letter that killeth and the spirit that giveth life. Verse 7 is really where we start our topic. But if the administration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away, that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then we have such hope, let us use great plainness of speech, not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded, for unto this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with an open face, Beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into that same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. God add His blessing to His Word. Well, there are foundational understandings of eschatology in this glorious text. This text here is comparing the glory of the outworking of the Old Covenant with that of the New Covenant. The Old Covenant or ministration or service, the ministry of death, it is called, had a glory. Now that glory here is pictured by the glory of God shining in the face of Moses. Turn to Exodus 34. We will read this account. Exodus 34, starting in verse 28. And he was there, that was Moses with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tables of, uh, two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the Mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. When Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. Moses called unto them, and Aaron and the, all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. 
When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took off the veil until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. The children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. Moses put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him, that is, with God. So what is happening here is that Paul is taking the account of this story of Moses' face shining after spending time in the presence of Jehovah and how that instilled fear in the people and how he had to put a veil over his face because the people were too afraid to speak with Moses while his face reflected the glory of God. And when Moses would go back into the tabernacle and speak with God, meet with the presence of God, he would take off the veil. Now, Paul is not merely comparing how shiny Moses' face was with the brightness of Jesus' face. We're not talking about lumens here. Rather, we're, he is comparing the whole of the service of each covenant. The law and the gospel, of works and grace. Now, what you ought to take away, firstly, is that there was a glory to the old covenant. There was a glory to the old covenant. This was a ministry, a service, a working of God. The old covenant served the purposes of God. It was good and just and holy. We think of the faith found in Hebrews 11. And most of the acts committed of faith in Hebrews 11 occurred under the old covenant. We think of victorious David and the glories of Solomon and his temple. I mean, wouldn't you like to have lived back then? Wouldn't you like to have seen the dedication of the temple? Wouldn't you like to see King Solomon all of his glory and the house he built and the way he beautified Jerusalem and the nation of Israel and the gold of the temple and all the, the instruments of worship? That'd be, quite, that'd be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? Worship was complex. The Old Covenant was complex in its worship. And yet... When you think about it, it was also simplistic. How many times in the Old Testament did God institute memorials for the direct purpose for fathers to teach their children? Children, you certainly remember that God cares about your learning of His Word and what He's done and who He is and what He commands you. Yet at the same time, the Old Covenant was complex. It wasn't simplistic of itself. So there's a, there's a glory to the Old Covenant. Paul said in Romans 7, that was good and just and holy, and we're not to despise the Old Covenant. We're not to look down its nose. There's popular theology today that goes out of its way to minimize the spirituality of the Old Covenant. And this is done in some respects from the overemphasis of the Old Covenant by Presbyterians and such. Uh, I suppose I should interject here. God in His mercy has caused a revival of grace in this country. And ministers are rediscovering their theological roots. And it's a mercy of God upon the churches. And as, we, as people begin to discover grace and the doctrines of grace and covenant theology, uh, especially in the, in the latter half of, of the previous century, there was a distinct lack of of theology from Sovereign Grace Theology from Baptist sources. So what happens is that if you want to read about grace, if you want to read about covenant theology, that leaves a lot of the Pado Baptist. And we do love Calvin, we do love 
John Owen. We do love John Knox. We love Luther. We love Manton. On and on and on. of Men who were close to God, and that's reflected in their writings. When John Calvin writes on the nature and character of God, it's glorious. He's really a kind-hearted man who... He's known for his theology, but really spent his life as a pastor, pastoring and uh, sending out missionaries. I mean, he, he was a real caring man in a lot of ways. And so we read their books, but they hold to a non-Baptist theology because they're not Baptists, obviously. And so what happens is that Baptists can get confused about what we believe about the covenants because they see sovereign grace in the Scriptures, but then they go read the theology books and they see the sovereign grace in the Scriptures interpreted in light of Pado baptist And just real short, the main difference between, say, what we believe and, and Presbyterians, that they would say the Old Covenant is actually the covenant of grace. And you'll hear words like, one covenant, different administrations. So that they look at the Old Covenant as the covenant of grace. God just worked it out in their lives different. Then under the New Covenant, He works it out different. But it's the same covenant. That's not what we believe. We believe the Old Covenant was a distinct. It was not the covenant of grace. It was not an administration of the covenant of grace. It was a parallel covenant that served a purpose for a time. And that covenant is complete and done away. Abolished. We hold that the covenant of grace, or the covenant of redemption, has always existed. It's the overarching covenant that saves all mankind. And it came to its full fruition in the new covenant. If you used to ask me, I would say the new covenant is the covenant of grace. And that all who have ever been saved have always been saved under that covenant. The Old Testament people were saved by the new covenant, which was instituted in time by Jesus. It was applied to all the elect from all eternity. Uh, the Old Testament people were saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that affords us the ability to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and make sense of it. Because you're not going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and make sense of it if you're talking about different administrations of one covenant. That terminology probably doesn't make any sense to you as it does to me. It doesn't even make sense. How could Paul compare the covenant of grace to the covenant of grace? You see. And... So what we have is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Scriptures speak of there being two covenants. And Paul identifies these covenants in these passages. Now, this was a glorious covenant. It was called glorious four or five times in this chapter. This was a small glory. And this small glory was not the ultimate purpose of God. It was Solomon... In all of his glory, the eschatological goal of God. God set Solomon up. He got the temple dedicated. Everything's built. Everything's shiny. Everything's new. God manifested his glory. Was it God's intention that Israel just lasts forever and ever and ever in that state in the temple? Obviously not. I certainly say no. Yes, there was an old covenant glory. But when a mere flower of the field excels the glory of great Solomon, we must admit that God definitely has something better in store for mankind than what Solomon had. Surely, Solomon was the height of the Old Covenant. Establishment of the country, peace roundabout, 
Israel, for the most part, faithful. Solomon fell at the end of his life. But I can't think of any time in the history of Israel that would have been an apex over King Solomon. And yet see how short of glory Solomon and all his glory under the Old Covenant comes. God has something better in store. This is more evident when we contrast the glory of Moses with the glory of Christ. And Paul does this uh, most skillfully, most bluntly. He doesn't mince a lot of words, does he? You see how in this the, the general context of 2 Corinthians is that Paul's defending his apostleship. And you see that here how we, in the first five verses. Evidently, there were people who come to Corinth who had uh, letters of commendation from Jerusalem, and I'm a Jew, and I learned under Gamaliel, and I'm uh, uh, Paul. Yeah, he's a weirdo. He just travels about doing his own thing. And uh, Did Paul give you a letter of commendation from uh, uh, Jerusalem, the inner Jerusalem council? And so they had these men going into the church. I was trying to cast derision on Paul, try to minimize his teaching of grace to bring these people back under the law. Paul's argument in the first five passages are, do I need a letter from you when I'm the one that preached the gospel to you and formed a church in Corinth in the first place? You are our letter. Because you're a Christian because of my preaching. And my preaching is in the Spirit. Not in the letter. They're trying to bring you back under that letter. Now Paul is going to push it in their face what those false teachers are trying to do to them. Like I said today, there's all sorts of churches that have fallen in with this error of going back unto the law, trying to earn a works righteousness. First of all, the Old Covenant, though it was good and just and holy, it's called a ministry of death. A ministry of death. But if the ministration or the ministry of death written and engraving on stones was glorious, it's interesting, huh? It's called the ministry of condemnation. So how can the Old Covenant, did God institute a covenant of death and condemnation and wickedness? I mean, what, what is Paul doing here? Well, the death that comes about does not come directly because of the covenant itself. But uh, the covenant is a ministry of death indirectly. And first that it identifies sin. The Old Covenant, the law, identifies sin. John 3, 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Notice that's present tense. And John wrote well after the destruction of the temple. Maybe. For sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. So the law identifies sin, which is part of the giving of the law in the first place. Romans 3.20 Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 7.7 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. Galatians 3.19 Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. But the law comes and the service of the law 
is because of transgressions to identify and label sin as sin. And once you label it as sin, it can then point you to the Savior of that sin. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to teach us what sin is and then also to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. James 1.14 says this, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, which is condemned by the law, and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So the law identifies sin by condemning sin as sin. And the sentence that the law gives upon sin it identifies is death. The soul that sins shall die. That is what is meant in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. If there wasn't this gargantuan judgment waiting of eternal consequences waiting to be enacted upon the sinner, if that was done away, would sin be any big deal? If you sin, so what? It's a great morality question that atheists have to answer. So what? Well, if I killed you, would that be wrong? Well, yeah. Well, so why? Well, then I'd be dead. Well, so what? Well, the police would kill, come get you. Well, I'll kill them too. Just kill enough people will solve all your problems. If you're an atheist, why is that wrong? But if there's a law, if God is judge of this world, then all men will come to judgment. That is some serious strength upon being labeled a sinner. And death being an eternal death. You see what it means then that the strength of sin is the law? It's not that the law makes you sin. The law stirs up sin in a sinner. Tells somebody they can't do something. And the sin that's already within them gets stirred up and they go, what do you mean I can't do that? I'll show you. That's not a fault of the law. That's a fault of the sinner. It's like saying the strength of persecution is a gospel witness. If you don't witness, you're not going to get persecuted, are you? So what gives strength and energy to persecution? Witnessing. It's not, it's not that there's anything wrong with the witnessing, but it stirs up the sin in people. So this glorious ministry brought about one end. When you look at the law and you look at the, the goal of the law, the end of the law, what is it? Death. There's nothing in the law that says anything about earning life. The only way you could ever earn life under the law is never ever to have any sin. I have to tell you that it's too late for that. For every one of us, for every one of you children even, it's too late to try and earn a righteousness by the law. It was too late before you were even born because you were condemned by your father Adam. So then the law can only bring one thing, death. The old covenant could not bring life. So if the old covenant, if the law could only bring death, does that sound like to you the eschatological goal of Jesus Christ? That He wants to rule the world and enact the law all over the world. I know there's some really good post-millennial brethren that I love. I do appreciate some aspects of post-millennial theology. But I just cannot conceive that the law of God has it as administered under the old covenant 
is the purpose of God for humanity. The law was not made for the righteous. 1 Timothy 1.9 Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinner, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, and so on. Did Jesus Christ need the Ten Commandments to know what to do? Do the saints in their glorified state in heaven need threats of death from the law to stay saints in heaven? If Jesus Christ is going to have a righteous people for His kingdom, why would those righteous people need to be submitted under the Old Covenant? From the very beginning, this law was made to be done away. From the very beginning, it had a time clock on it at an expiration date. That date was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look, look here what he says. But if the ministration, the ministry of death, written and graven in stones, the old covenant, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away? Evidently, the glory that shone from Moses' face when he spent time from God faded over time. That's the way I understand it. And then he'd go back in and commune with God and he'd come back in and out and have to cover his face again. How long this lasted, we don't know. But here, there was that, that glory that shone from Moses' face, which is representative of the Old Covenant, faded away. Just like it is to tell us and show us that the Old Covenant was always meant to fade away. Uh, let me see here. Also, uh, look, uh, verse 13, 2 Corinthians 3. Not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Moses and that covenant is abolished. That glory has faded away. Galatians 3, 19. Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions. We said that earlier. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Was ordained in the end. Till the seed should come. That seed of the woman that would destroy the works of the devil. That covenant was just to abide until that time period. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. How then could you expect... That when Christ returns, that He would re-exalt this law. The law itself could make nothing perfect. And this is a strong argument for my eschatology. The law itself could make nothing perfect. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Now how many people have it completely backwards who teach that works are necessary for salvation? Faith cannot save alone. Faith alone cannot save. We need good works to perfect our salvation, to finish it off, to polish it off, top it off. But the law here said made nothing perfect. Children by perfect, it means complete, full, mature. The law made nothing perfect. Note carefully that our text 
specifically says that our hope in the gospel does make things perfect. It makes it complete to the point that we can draw close to God. So you will never be able to draw close to God under the Old Covenant. Moses goes up there for 40 days. Previously, when Moses went up there, uh, he asked to see the face of God. And what, what did God say? You remember? No, no man can look on me and live. You can see my receding glory. You can see my back. God passed before Moses. I think that story is in there. Number one, to magnify and sanctify God in our thoughts of who He is. The idea that there's a killing glory of God. And we read that theme all throughout Scripture. When true holiness is manifested, men, even converted men, even holy men, fall down on their face. There's a, a rebuke that happens when true holiness is manifested. And the closer you get to God Himself, the more dramatic that effect is. Men of God, angels, have produced that effect. That effect with God Himself is so strong, God says, you won't live through it. I believe that is to show us that Moses, who is a representative of a works righteousness, will never be able to come to God and live. And the idea of a sinner coming to God to seek life is like a criminal coming to a police officer to seek freedom. It doesn't work that way. You will have to answer for your sins. And if you're coming to God in a works righteousness, then you're going to have to answer for all your works, including your wicked works. And if you don't think your works, if you think that your works are good enough to be accepted by God, well, that's what the law is there for. Well, let's see. Go to the law. Have you loved God with all your heart all the time? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself all the time? No, I wouldn't go to God if I were you in that sense. And that's what happened. Just the mere reflected glory. Not God Himself. But here's Moses, a man of like infirmity. People know Moses' sin. They know his weakness. They know his failings. And yet he comes reflecting the glory of God. And what do they do when they see that glory? They run away. He has to call them back. He, he, he probably had no idea why they were running. He'd just come from the presence of God. And they timidly come back to Him. That's what it would be like for you to try and approach God in works righteousness. The only way you could approach God in that way is to cover up His glory. Because His glory and your works don't match. That's the whole purpose of this story that Paul is illustrating for us. That's the whole idea of him comparing these two covenants. That God in His providence worked these uh, historic, actual, true happenings are allegorically interpreted for us so we can have an understanding of who God is and what He is doing, of, of, of the truth of what God is doing. The story of Moses' face shining, which was a true historical event, is interpreted by us to say that, yes, there was a glory, but that glory faded. There's a glory from another mediator. That mediator is Jesus Christ. And His glory does perfect does accomplish, finish, mature. It is done. It is finished, Jesus said. And with that glory, with that covenant, you can draw nigh to God. And it is not a killing glory you will receive, but a transforming glory. 
the glory of the gospel makes the glory of the old covenant no glory at all, like a small candle compared to the noonday sun. The face of Moses shone with the glory of God, but it faded. It wasn't permanent. It wasn't meant to be. How different is this from Jesus Christ? His face shone with His own glory, being the very image of God Himself. That God, who just a chapter over, commanded the light to shine out of darkness and has shined in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face, not of Moses, but in the face of Jesus Christ. That glory of God which shines in Jesus doesn't make us recoil in fear. When the Spirit comes and sets us free from the law, free from that guilt of condemnation, when the, where the Spirit is, not where works of repentance are. You can't come to God in mere repentance. Repentance has no propitiatory effects at all. Rob a bank and you repent, you're still guilty. Repentance alone will not save you. But when the Spirit comes and touches you and shines that light in the darkness of your heart, instead of running away, you come. The Son of Man be lifted up. He will draw all men to me. And now, don't you think of Christ and His glory? That you want to go to that glory? Don't you want to be where Jesus is in His glory? It's a transforming glory. One of my favorite passages in 1 John. Turn there and we'll... Uh, We'll have one more verse and then we'll, we'll end. Back to John chapter 3. Verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Here's, here's where, where we get into the eschatology. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know by faith when He shall appear, eschatology, we shall be like Him, transformed. For we shall see Him as He is. Now this, may I say, is the great purpose of God in giving His Son the kingdom. He will not have mere obedient subjects to rule over by law, but His subjects will bear His very image. I can tell you this is the purpose of God and always has been the purpose of God. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and we'll end there. Starting in verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate from eternity past, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he just justified, them He also glorified. We shall be like Him. God is predestinated for whom He did foreknow. He predestinated to be partakers of that changing, transforming glory in the face of Jesus Christ. To be drawn nigh unto God through Christ. That is His purpose for all the Scripture. Everything written is to get to this point. That's not yet there. We're not yet there. It does not yet appear what we shall be. God's not done with you. God's still transforming you. You haven't stared Jesus Christ in the face, have you? And just as staring God in the face by your works will get you killed, staring Jesus Christ in the face by faith will get you transformed and you will be like Him. 
You will be your brother. You will be co-heirs of his inheritance of that kingdom. So much that you will be called kings, as it says in Revelation. I do like how it says here that those he justified to be able to draw near. So you don't have that sin guilt. Romans 8.30 is just filled with just delicious Greek. But did you notice that last page? Them he also glorified. Them he also glorified. Interesting tense there, huh? Remember how I said the kingdom of God is a present yet not yet kingdom? And now in the coming kingdom, the works of God are now God's working as kingdoms now. We're part of the kingdom of God now. Yet we still pray thy kingdom come. God's transforming us by faith. We stare in that faith, in that mirror of the God's Word. And we pray to Him. And the more we pray and read His Word, well, the more we're transformed like Him, aren't we? The more we stay around people that bear that same image, the more we reflect that same in image, huh? When you're around influences that are not like Jesus, you begin to take up that worldly image, don't you? Are we glorified yet? Trick question. Romans 8.30 says we are glorified. Glorified. It's a done deal. Because God's predestinated it. That means God has predestinated your sanctification to be like Jesus. That's a sure deal. So how shall we be like Him? By works? By law? By free will? No, by looking into the face of Jesus. We look into the face of Jesus by faith. And one day we shall see Him face to face. Now that glorification there, them He also glorified as the essence of eschatology. And this should be the very main idea we always keep in mind whenever we read or think of anything about eschatology or the return of Jesus. This right here should govern every single thought we have that we shall be glorified and conformed to His image. He will remove all aspects of sin and we shall be in a place and state where sin and its evil effects cannot touch us and nothing but holiness reigns. That's eschatology. Doesn't that sound so much better than trying to resurrect Moses to rule over the whole world? Now, next week, we will continue this vein and we will deal more specifically with Jews and uh, the state of Jews and the end times. But we will do so in the light of what we've established, that God has a better covenant with better promises, a covenant that can perfect us, that can save us, that can forgive sins because the old covenant couldn't do any of those things. It was never meant to. And that has tremendous applications for Jews at the end time.